have only two more wellsprings after today. This feels like the year has flown by. Um, so I get to teach the disciplines this morning, and then Janet's going to teach us from First Thessalonians. So to pray, just because I have been reminding myself lately of what a great resource this is. You all have a Wellspring songbook. They have different covers on them, depending on what year you got your book. Um, but I'm going to use one of these songs and use it and pray through it and paraphrase it for us, because this is just a great tool for praying truth back to the Lord that our own hearts need to hear that can prepare us to be in God's word. So let's go before the Lord. Jesus, you are a friend of sinners. You loved us before we ever knew you. You drew us with your cords of love and you tightly bound us to yourself. Lord, round our hearts still closely twine the ties that none can sever. For, Lord, every believer can say, I am his, and he is mine, forever and forever. O oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, a crown of thorns you wore for us. You were bruised for our transgressions. You were pierced for our iniquities. The wrath of God that we deserve was poured out on the innocent you took our place, our soul to save. Now we are yours forever. Jesus, friend of sinners, we love to tell the story. Redeeming love has been our theme and will be when in glory. Not death, nor life, nor anything can ever separate us. Oh, love that will not let us go. Yes, we are yours forever. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you have done to make us yours forever. And as we come before you this morning, I pray that the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart would be acceptable to you, Lord. Make us attentive. Make us teachable. Oh, Father, I pray that your word would go forth in such a way that every heart receives it, and is transformed to be more and more like Jesus, that our church would be strengthened and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and turn your notebook over. We review this every time so that we never lose sight of why we get up early and come together like this. So the Wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the Women of Grace Bible Church, that's us, to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that we live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening our church in its gospel purpose. And to pursue that, we have three disciplines. Discipline one is the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the Word of God and in particular, the gospel. Now, just a couple weeks, a couple lessons ago, Smed was here, and he taught us what scripture says about the vulnerability of our heart to sin and to hard-heartedness and how vigilantly we must guard our hearts with God's word. That's why we have discipline one. Mm -hmm. And discipline one equips us for discipline two. Discipline two is the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home. And she ministers to them. That means that she serves them, she cares for them, she shepherds them, she prays for them, she responds to them, 
with her heart fixed on God and his word. But that is not where it ends. That overflows then into ministry, discipline three, with the heart fixed on God, which is discipline one, and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, that's discipline two, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Back on our very first week, Jamie said that discipline three is a mindset. It's a mindset that remembers the believer is saved into the body of Christ. And God's design is that we would love and serve and help one another grow in such a way that the church is strengthened and Jesus is put on display. And our theme verse in Proverbs, our theme verse for Wellspring then is Proverbs 4.23, which says, above all else, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And next time, I believe, Jacob is going to be here teaching us that verse, and I just cannot wait to hear that lesson. So in wellspring, one of the tools we use to fuel all of this, to guard our hearts, to shepherd our hearts worshipfully toward God through the word, so that we are continually equipped to, for the ministry God has for us in our homes and in our church, is a reading plan. It's a plan to help us read all of God's word every year. Now, why do we do that? Well, it is not because other ways of drawing near to God in his word um, are not also beneficial. They're really valuable. It's good for us to engage with God in his word in lots of ways. Reading it, studying it, memorizing it, thinking about it. Um, and always, always, no matter how we're interacting with God's word, to do that worshipfully, humbly, submissively. So then, why in Wellspring do we focus specifically on meeting with God in all of his word by reading through it in a year or maybe in a couple of years? What are some of the unique benefits of reading all of God's word? Well, there are many. Hopefully you've come to see some of those as you've persevered through with a reading plan. But some of the benefits are that it helps us to understand the big picture of the Bible. Um, it certainly helps us understand the New Testament better when it refers to things in the Old Testament, and that happens a lot. Um, and like Omri showed us last time in Proverbs, from, from Proverbs 2, it guards us from picking and choosing what we want to hear in the Word and leaving out the parts that we really don't want to hear. Um, and when reading several chapters a day, like you do on a reading plan, it also helps us to get the flow of thought through a passage much better than if we're just focusing on a few verses at a time. But there is another benefit as well that ties specifically with our emphasis in Wellspring on shepherding our hearts. So to illustrate this, I'd like to hear from about five of you, what is your favorite book of the Bible? Corey. Revelation. Revelation. I knew someone was going to say that. Okay, Lori. Psalms. Psalms. Barb. Proverbs. Proverbs. I need two more. Colossians. Colossians. Great. Matthew. Matthew. All right. That is a great variety. Um, so now I want to show you something. I feel like this is sort of a coordination exercise. Okay, 
So what this is, this is a list. This, we used to put this in the Wellspring notebook. So if you've been in Wellspring for years, you've seen this before. Um, this is a list of how many times just the word heart occurs in each book of the Bible. And that's from the NAS version. It would vary a little bit from version to version. So let's look and see how many times the heart is mentioned in these five books. So we've got Revelation, that's mentioned three times there. Psalm has a bunch, 126. Proverbs, 69, that's got a lot of mentions of the heart. Colossians, 7. And Matthew, 16. All right. Um, Janet. Add those up. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to Scott Maxwell go through this 10 years ago in Build or something, and he used to be a math teacher. He's just doing it off the top of his head, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to write him down, give him to somebody. <laughs> 221. Okay, that's good. Um, so... The reason we did that is because many times what will happen if we don't have a plan for reading through all of God's word is that we'll just keep cycling through our five or so favorite books. And occasionally we'll dabble in something else. But over the course of many years, many believers will just cycle through those same books over and over and over again. Now, if we do that and we're going to expose ourselves to what God says about the heart, in this case, 221 times, that's great. That's really, really good because we want to see what God says in his word about the heart. We need to see that in order to better, better understand how badly we need to shepherd our own heart and how to shepherd our heart. But what I want us to see is that if we don't read other books of the Bible, if we don't read through the Bible as a whole, there's a whole lot we won't be letting God show us about the heart, about our heart. Um, now look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy mentions the heart 45 times. See, if we never read Deuteronomy, we are not going to let God instruct us about the heart 45 times. First Kings, 30 times. Second Chronicles, 31 times. Those are not books that necessarily make it onto our five favorites lists. <laughs> but if we don't read those books, we're not letting God address us about the heart, about the condition of our own heart that he has revealed in those books. Look at Jeremiah. 48 times he mentions the heart. I mean, how many times do you sit down with the word and just randomly decide to read Jeremiah when you don't have a reading plan? <laughs> But look at all we would miss. So the Old Testament is loaded with books that want to address the heart, with which God will address our heart if we read them. So that's just another encouragement to press on with reading all of God's word. And it can be difficult. It might take a lot of prayer and effort and discipline. That's why we call it a discipline, right? It's to learn to shepherd our hearts, to really meet with God, and to worship him, and to keep our heart engaged when we're reading several chapters at a time. It takes a lot of perseverance to learn how to manage our time so that we are consistently in the word each day. But it's worth the effort. It's worth persevering. Maybe there are times that you feel so far behind 
that it feels like it's going to take you years to get through all of God's word, or it feels like you're skipping more than you're reading just to try to keep up. But you know what? Don't worry about those things. Look what you stand to gain. Growing more and more familiar with and in love with God's revealing of himself on every page of scripture so that we learn all he has for us to know about himself and about the heart and everything that he has given us for life and godliness. So each time through the word, in some ways, we barely scratch the surface. Um, and yet when we persevere year after year and bit by bit, we understand a little bit more, we remember more, and we are more and more conformed to be like Jesus. So if you're struggling, if it's been hard lately, keep going. Press on. We all struggle and stumble. Just don't give up. The plan is a tool. It's a tool. But the point is that this is about our heart before God's word. Worshiping him. Knowing him more. Desiring to behold all that he has revealed in his word. In fact, you will know that you're really understanding what Wellspring is all about and the condition of your own heart as a believer when you see how beneficial the assignments and the resources are that Wellspring puts before us, whether it's the reading plan, the homework, doing it thoughtfully, letting it show again our sin and where we need to grow and how badly we need God's word, or the Wellspring songbook, the lessons, the notebook. There are just so many resources to help us spur us on in our walk with the Lord. So press on to shepherd your heart with God's word, the sweet fruit that comes from that in your own life and in your home and in our church puts the power of God's grace on display, and that glorifies God. So that's those are our wellspring purpose and disciplines. And now Janet's going to come teach us. Hopefully all of you know that this is Janet Yates, and she's teaching us from 1 Thessalonians 5. So hello, other wellspring. It's always fun to see who's here on Saturdays and I still see faces that I see on Thursday, but you guys are usually over with the kids, so it's just sweet to be here, so I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you guys are here, too. All right, well, this morning, we are going to spend time in one verse. It's one verse that's going to give us some practical wisdom for how to practice discipline three, and if you, if I'm not making it clear where we're at in the outline, just let me know, raise your hand, I'll try to notice that. So we desire to step into the lives of each other in the church and outside of the church in other to point others to God and the gospel. And 1 Thessalonians 5.14 provides us with not merely techniques, but as David Pallison says, it provides us with different ways of loving appropriately. David Pallison is a biblical counselor and he wrote a, um, an article. It's all about 1 Thessalonians 5.14 and he wrote it probably almost two decades ago. I remember reading this when I was out at Masters, but um, I'm going to quote from him a couple of times. And if you want that exact article, I can give it to you later. It's from the Journal of Biblical Counseling. Well, nobody wants a misdiagnosis of physical symptoms. If you have uncomfortable and specific physical symptoms and you go into your doctor and explain them to, to him or her, you are going to your doctor hoping for a correct physical diagnosis and an appropriate solution. You don't want to hear the doctor say, okay, I see you have a really high fever 
and you have a lot of respiratory congestion and extreme fatigue, and I know just what this is, it's a sprained ankle. So <laughs> I'm really good at treating them, and I can get you over this fast, and we're gonna get some ice, and I'll get you into a physical therapist. So that would be discouraging, right? <laughs> you would not be getting the help you need. I found a website, and I would not recommend that you read it. I was telling Mom Jay over there um, about this website. It's where medical doctors and medical techs wrote in anonymously and told about different times that they misdiagnosed things or did something wrong with IVs or really all kinds of things. It was actually terrifying to read. But um, one of them, I told Smut about it, and he's like, you should not be reading that. <laughs> so, he was right. I knew. I was like, I'm just here looking for one illustration, and I'm going to find it, and I'm going to be done with this. Um, so, okay, there was a doctor that wrote in, and I don't know if it was a female or a male, but it was from, I'm just going to use he. It was from his, um, early on in his career. He had a patient come to him. It was a female, and if you're medical, you can try to see if you can figure out what this is. She came to him, and she said, this is, these are what's happening to me. I have spells of bizarre sensations, that's kind of general, vague, and altered awareness. Um, sometimes I have a pounding in my chest, so much so that I have to stop um, doing whatever I'm doing, sit down, and I can't speak. And so years before she came to this young doctor, um, she had had a gunshot wound to her head, and it, it damaged the front part of her brain. Um, it said it had damaged... Uh, the frontal lobe, one of the frontal lobes, and severed an optic nerve to one of her eyes, and the frontal lobe was scarred. So the doctor knew this previous history, and he assumed that she had developed frontal lobe epilepsy from the scar on her brain. So he prescribed to her anti-seizure drugs, and he gave her increasing doses until it seemed like the symptoms went away. But they came back. So then a couple years later, she went to an endocrinologist who checked her thyroid and found out she had hyperthyroidism. So that doctor radiated her thyroid and started her on thyroid replacement medicine, and then all the previous symptoms stopped. And she was able to stop taking the anti-epilepsy drugs because she had never had epilepsy. So she could have been helped a few years earlier if the doctor, the original doctor, had just maybe listened a little bit better to her symptoms or kind of thought outside of what he was familiar with. And since it was early in his career, maybe he should have just gotten an advice from someone that was further down the road and could have helped her. Thankfully, she was helped, and that was one of the best stories that I read on that website. <laughs> so anyway, um, <laughs> the verse we're looking at today is going to help us with checking spiritual symptoms in one another so that we're able to give the appropriate kind of care to each other. God's wisdom provides us with real symptoms real conditions, and the correct medicine. So before we jump into the verse, let's just get established in the letter that we call the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's just so good for our hearts to remember that this is a real letter. It was written hundreds of years ago, almost a little less than 2,000 years ago. Um, it was written to real people, and these were real words inspired by God. First of all, this letter was sent from three men, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. It was sent to the church of the Thessalonians. Thessalonica was a city in Macedonia. It had about 200,000 people in Paul's day. And just to put that in perspective, I looked up Chandler, Arizona has 236,000 people. So 
kind of helps you put it in perspective. So this is the one church in that town. And Paul had gone to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He, of course, started out by going into the synagogue, and he taught about Jesus being the Messiah. Some of the Jews there believed, and then um, some Gentiles started believing, and a church was formed. Eventually, there was hostility from the Jewish religious leaders, and Paul was evicted from the city. So after he left, he was in Athens, and he sent Timothy back to check on the church in Thessalonica. This letter is written in response to Timothy's report back to Paul about the church there in Thessalonica. So in order to keep it simple about just a little overview of 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to give you a key word slash key phrase from the book, um, I mean, for the book, from Color Through the Bible series that my kids do. <laughs> Thanks to Sarah. It's this great little um, workbook that has like a, a tiny summary of the whole chapter of a book of the, I mean, a summary of the whole book for each book in the Bible. So like Genesis, like you'd say, oh, beginnings, it's all about the beginnings. So 1 Thessalonians' key phrase from this little Color Through the Bible series is stay on target. So a target is a goal. It's something to aim at. And Timothy's report about this church was really encouraging. They were on target spiritually. And Paul encourages them to continue on. That's the main idea of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul loves this church, and he's very happy about the report that Timothy brings back to him. And here's why. So A in your outline, this is what was encouraging to Paul about this church. The Thessalonians had become imitators of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, as well as imitators of the Lord. We see that in chapter 1, verse 6. That was encouraging to him. Secondly, they had the reputation of expectantly waiting for Jesus to return from heaven. That's in chapter 1, verse 10. That's a good reputation to have. Thirdly, they had received the word in much tribulation, but with joy. This church was familiar with tribulation, but they also had real joy. And that's in chapter 1, verse 6. The Thessalonian church had also received the word of God, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Chapter 2, verse 13, and I'm sure that encouraged Paul's heart as well. And then go ahead and look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Paul makes three really encouraging statements about the people in this church. He writes, We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, notice, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. And then go down to verses 9 and 10. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And then move down to chapter 5, verse 11. He writes, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So there's a lot of good things in here. Paul is affirming them for three different things. First, he's saying, I need to let you guys know, this is, well, I, I already let you know how to walk, how to please the Lord. But I'm going to tell you again how to walk and please the Lord. But you guys are doing it. Just keep on doing it and do it even better. 
And so he affirmed, oh, I think, are we on, we're on B. Okay. Paul affirmed the Thessalonians for walking in a manner pleasing to God. He also affirmed their love for one another. He was saying, you guys need to love each other, but you are. I hear that you love the brethren in Macedonia. And he affirmed them for the way they were building one another up. They were doing, they were practicing the one another's. Yet, he still felt it right and necessary to remind them to do those things and to excel even more. So excel still more. So you can kind of see why the key phrase for this book would be stay on target. You're doing a good job. Keep doing it and excel even more. All right. So now we're in chapter 5. This brings us to the section where we find our verse for today's lesson. Chapter 4, verse 1 seems to sort of be a turning point in Paul's letter that begins a very practical section on how to walk, which means how to live in a manner pleasing to God. Chapter 5, the first part of it, chapter or verses 1 to 11, is a reminder that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's going to come unexpectedly. The culture and the world around will be saying peace and safety. They're going to say, there's nothing to worry about. Look what we've achieved. There's finally human prosperity and unity. But then destruction is going to come. The reality that God exists and that every person is accountable will be evident and there will not be escape. Paul encourages the Thessalonians Sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay. He encourages the Thessalonians that they are not designed for that destruction, but they have been graciously destined for salvation through Jesus Christ, who died for them, so that whether they're awake or asleep, meaning physically alive or physically dead, they will live together with him, with Christ, which is such a great statement right there. Whether you're physically alive or physically dead, you're going to live with Christ. How cool is that? So that reality informs the Thessalonians and it informs us about how we need to relate to and interact with one another in the church. In chapter 5, Paul uses three verbs to petition the Thessalonians about how they should live in light of Jesus' return and in light of the reality of their salvation from God's wrath. He requests in verse 12, he urges in verse 14, and then he adjures in verse 27. Paul is using entreaties um, to guide the church into how they should live. His first request there in um, verse 12 is about how the believers appreciate and esteem the leaders in their church who diligently labor among them. He's instructing them on how to honor the leaders in their church. Then he gives commands for how to interact with each other in the body of Christ. These one another instructions begin in verse 13 with live in peace with one another, and then they end with seeking good for one another, and even seeking good for those who are outside of the body, rather than repaying evil for evil, and that's in verse 15. So sandwiched in between these commands is verse 14, where we're going to be spending the remainder of our morning. Um, and then let me just finish out uh, chapter 5. So after verse 15, Paul gives commands that are more of an um, they're more individual in nature. These commands need to be put into practice individually by every believer. They're actions and habits that each Christian is responsible for. However, obedience to these commands will not only greatly impact one's individual walk with the Lord, but it will also impact the community of believers. And then before we set up camp in verse 14, notice the last strong command or 
sorry, the last strong request, really, that Paul makes in the letter. It's an adjuration in verse 27. Paul solemnly implores, that's what it means to adjure, the Thessalonians to have this letter read to all the brethren, meaning all the people who make up this church. He wanted all of them to know of his thankfulness for, for them and for all of them to know of the evidences of God's work that he sees in their hearts. And he wants them all to hear these instructions on how to live in a manner pleasing to the Lord, how to stay on target. All right, let's read our verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Oh, yes. Last one for on the first page. Focus on chapter five. Okay, tell me what. The reality the believers with their awakened sleep with oh. Christ. The reality informs. Um, okay, that tell does it have a blank for informs. Mm-hmm. That reality informs how they and us relate to and interact with one another, mm-hmm. or in the church. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for asking. All right, so 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. You may already have this verse memorized. It may be new to you, or it may just be um, really good to be reminded of what this verse contains. But hopefully by the end of this lesson, you'll have it memorized, and it will be something handy for you to use. So it's actually really not a hard verse to understand. It's actually very clear. And it's succinct in both its structure and its meaning. If we were to ask a how question of discipline three, like how do I step into the lives of my sisters in Christ in order to shepherd them toward God in the gospel, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is a great answer to this question. We are to patiently admonish, patiently encourage, and patiently help one another as is fitting. Notice, first of all, that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are urging the believers in Thessalonica. To urge is a stronger word than just to ask. These men were entreating or soliciting the Thessalonians to do something. This is something that's important that must be done. Secondly, notice that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are addressing these commands to the brethren. They are not urging the pastors and leaders only. These commands are for everyone in the body, everyone that's been forgiven of their sins in Christ and who are now purposing to live for Christ. Paul could have used the word believers, um, church, or beloved, but he actually used the word brother or brethren instead. This reminds this church of the familial nature of the relationships between everyone who is in Christ. We are spiritual siblings, brothers and sisters, so there should be the same affection and care that we would extend to natural family members within the church. So there's four commands given in this verse. And what are those four commands? This is not a rhetorical question. So what's the first command? Admonish the unruly. What's the second command? Encourage the faint-hearted. And the third command? Help the weak. And the fourth? Be patient with everyone. So there's four commands, but there's just three different categories given for brothers and sisters who are in need of specific care. Just as we would desire a medical doctor accurately diagnose our physical symptoms, we as spiritual brothers and sisters need to take the time to accurately diagnose each other's spiritual symptoms and spiritual needs. That actually can sound intimidating, but God's given us his word and his spirit and his wisdom so that we can lovingly care for one another according to each other's needs. 
David Pallison wrote that First um, Thessalonians 5.14 is a passage describing and calling for the flexibility of wisdom. He's saying this verse actually describes how wisdom is manifested, and it tells us that wisdom is flexible. I don't know that I usually think of wisdom being flexible, but it is. He said that we may tend toward just one way of dealing with people. One person may have a natural bent toward encouragement, and so they encourage at all times, regardless of the symptoms that they see in front of them. He writes, a hammer thinks everything is a nail, a blanket treats everyone as shivering, a wheelchair thinks everyone needs a lift, but wisdom sees people for what they are and gives what is needed. All right, so our first command is to admonish the unruly. Let's just start by understanding what unruly means. In the ESV, so I'm always using NAS, and I have the, the original words that I'm using are from the NASB. So the ESV uses the word idle, yes. The NIV uses the word idle, but also adds disruptive to the description. Other versions may say disorderly or irresponsible. The word unruly means to deviate from the prescribed order or rule. It was used to describe a soldier who was out of rank, behaving in a disorderly or insubordinate manner. He may not have been performing his duty or following through on his responsibility. So you can see why the word idle or disorderly would be used. So to put this into the context of believers, this would be a Christian who knows God's ways and knows what would please God, but he or she chooses to do the opposite. This is a deliberate disregard for what God has commanded. Sarah Demra said it this way <clears throat> about the unruly. It's a person who does not stay within God's design for them in at least some area of life. The unruly know God's standard, but they are rejecting his authority over them by disobeying. They are choosing not to live as God instructs. So disorderliness or unruliness can be sins of commission, meaning a person is doing or performing a specific sin, or it could be a sin of omission, meaning a person is not doing something that God has commanded. There's an example in the next book, which is Second Thessalonians, of an idle person. There were people in the church at Thessalonica when Paul wrote his second letter who were not working. They were living off of other people. And Paul says that they needed to admonish the ones that were doing this as brothers. So this group of people, their sin was not that they were going out and committing a sin like adultery or stealing, but which would be sins of commission, but they were not doing something that they should have been doing, which was working. So what does admonish mean? Some versions use the word warn, and the word literally means to put in mind. John MacArthur says it is putting sense into someone's head, alerting him of the serious consequences of his actions. Here's how Sarah put it. A sharp reproof designed to rescue the one who has strayed outside of God's design for their life. Admonishment must not be given from a judgmental or a superior attitude in the one doing the admonishing. It should rather be a compassionate yet firm exposing of sin and pointing out the path of repentance, calling this one who is stepping outside of God's design to turn back toward God and obey God rather than obey his or her desire in a specific area. Paul set an example for godly admonishment with the Ephesian elders and in other areas, but this is one that came to mind. In Acts 20, verse 31, 
Paul says that while he was with them, those Ephesian elders, for three years, he did not cease to admonish them with tears. He loved these men, and he ministered faithfully to and with them. His admonishment was heartfelt, and it came from his genuine love for them, and he had a desire to see them grow in Christlikeness. You could also jot down Galatians 6.1. It's another example of what admonishment should look like. The goal of admonishment is restoration, according to that verse. Admonishment should be administered with gentleness. The admonisher must also be careful to guard her heart when faced with temptation to sin as she goes to help release her sister from the snare of sin that she's in. So let's just put this into a real-life example. I'm going to use uh, the illustration of children because I think it's sometimes just easier to put things in perspective, like maybe with someone who's seven years old. So you're all parents, and you all have a seven-year-old boy, okay? <laughs> so let's just say you're, this uh, family has a rule that uh, when mom and dad are gone, the kids are not allowed to watch TV. They're not allowed to even turn on the TV to see what's on. They just have to wait to watch a show until the parents are home and they have, appro- the, have given approval. So an unruly child in this illustration would be a child that knows this rule, but when mom and dad are gone, uh, he turns on the TV and he watches the show. Um, he could be watching a show that's bad, or he could be choosing to watch a show that he thinks is harmless because he's watched it with mom and dad before. Either way, kind of doesn't matter. So um, this child is clearly stepping out of rank. He's deviating from the path of obedience. He knows the rule, but he's chosen to disregard it. When the parents come home and they discover the willful disobedience, would it be most appropriate to offer encouragement? Or would admonishment be the most appropriate response? And why would, appro- why would admonishment be appropriate and necessary? It's because the child has willfully disregarded what his parents have deemed best for his own protection. He needs to recognize that what he's done is sin, and sin is a trap. It could even start to get fuzzy. Um, when we talk about our own sin and we are dealing with children or with each other, things can start to get fuzzy because there's justifications and, oh, it wasn't really as bad as what it seems. So maybe he claims he has a desire, he wants to obey, or he could have other justifications like this rule is just a little too ridiculous. Um, it's just too stringent, too rigid. The reality is the parents had set up a regulation for his own good, and he willfully sinned against his parents. He also sinned against his own conscience because he knew the rule. So as a parent, you can assess that situation and you recognize that you are dealing with an unruly child rather than a faint-hearted or weak child. So this does not require encouragement or help as this verse defines, but it requires admonishment. The unruly child needs to see that his choice to disregard a rule is rebellion, which is sin, which is therefore dangerous for him to continue in. It is appropriate that there's clarity in his mind that he has sinned and he needs to know what steps he can take to deal with his sin in regard to his relationship with his parents and in relationship with God. So when it comes to applying this to the body of Christ, we need to be able to recognize if we're dealing with a sister who is unruly. Here are some questions you could ask. Is this person choosing to disobey God? Is she disregarding clear standards that God has set for his children? Is she intentionally stepping outside of God's design in order to pursue sin? If the answer is yes, then this is an unruly person. And according to Paul and according to God, the best way to care for this person is to lovingly and patiently admonish her. A sister who is boldly choosing sin 
needs someone to be bold in calling sin what it is. Just like we would not want to have our flu symptoms be characterized by a sprained ankle. We wouldn't want it to be called a sprained ankle. That's not helpful to the person that has the flu. They probably need rest and to not be going to physical therapy. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, anyway, so we want to call sin what it is. Oh, thank you. I've got my coffee. <laughs> no, thank you. All right, so to call, call it sin, what it, whatever it is, it's ensnaring um, the sister is loving because it's truthful and points her to Christ, which is her only solution. You can't have solutions if you have the, a misdiagnosis. Christ is the only answer to dealing with our sins, unless, of course, we pay for those sins on ourselves. So admonishment calls sin what it is, points to the cross, points to the truth that a sister needs in order to know what repentance in this area looks like. To admonish, we need something. And what do we need? We need God's word. The authority and clarity for admonishment is not found in our preferences or our own ideas of what being unruly is. Only God has the right to rule his creatures. Admonishing requires that we go with the truth of God's word as the standard. Any admonishment that we give must only be an echo of what God says in his word. We cannot admonish on our own authority. His word also gives us the authority for what's right and wrong, but it also will provide the path of repentance for the sister. All right, so second command, encourage the faint-hearted. What exactly does faint-hearted mean? First of all, here are some other translations. Um, the NIV uses the word disheartened. Holman Christian Standard uses discouraged. The word literally means small-souled, like the small inner part of you. It can be those who are in fear and doubt. It could be someone who lacks boldness, someone who fears change or fears the unknown, someone who is timid. In the context of the Thessalonians, it could have been that some of them were faint-hearted because of their grief over the death of friends and family members who had been a part of that church. And then what does Paul say that God wants us to do with a sister who is faint-hearted? Encourage. If we take the time to assess, to listen to, and observe that a sister in Christ seems to be faint-hearted, our response must be to patiently encourage her. And what exactly does encouragement look like? It literally means that you give courage to another person. So a sister is lacking courage, and you seek to arm her with courage. Another way to say it is to make them bold, to hearten, to spur on, to stimulate, or to comfort. So let's think about faint-heartedness again and encouragement in the parent-child context. So a faint-hearted child could look a lot of different ways, but here's one example. A faint-hearted child may be a child who is more comfortable not being around peers, or to state it conversely, this child is uncomfortable around peers and would rather be around mom and dad or maybe siblings. So instead of joyfully interacting with other kids his age at social events, this child stays close to mom and dad. This child is lacking courage. You could say he's timid or he's fearful of the unknown. And why would this little boy need encouragement? Because he needs courage. He's lacking it. Um, this child may need to start thinking truthfully about his situation so that he can have the courage he needs to love others and to think about others more than himself. 
So in the case of a seven-year-old child, it could be really simple truths that he just needs to get courage. It could be as simple as, you're safe. I'm right here. I'm only going to be 10 steps away. You can go over and play on the playground with those other boys. Or um, maybe he actually just needs some words to say for how to start a conversation. So that's like human encouragement. I don't mean human in a, a bad way, but just that anyone could give that kind of encouragement to um, a little seven-year-old boy. But if we gave biblical encouragement to him, um, then we would need to be giving him truths about God that would give him the courage to do something that's not easy for him. Receiving courage from biblical truth will help a child who fears God in this situation to be selfless, to initiate kindness and friendship. Now, the difference between a person who is unruly and a person who is faint-hearted seems pretty obvious. One person is boldly sinning and willfully rebellious. Another person is lacking courage. The difference, however, is not that one is involving sin and the other one's not involving sin. The unruly are not the only sinners in these three categories. The faint-hearted may be timid and fearful because they're believing things that are not true, which that's sin, or because they're failing to honor God for how great he really is. They're not trusting God, which again is sinful. So they're going to have sins that they need to repent of. However, the first step with the faint-hearted is not admonishment, but encouragement. So what should we use to give courage to our sisters in Christ? What do we need? We need God's word. The best comfort is going to be truth about God, truth about the future, truth about this person's current situation. I'm going to give you a list of verses that I just have on hand for myself to encourage me when I um, think I need to hear truth. I have a little list that I pull up, but I think um, the faint-hearted um, in general would benefit from hearing these truths about God. So the faint-hearted need certainty that God hears their prayers. That's Psalm 10:17. They need certainty that he does not forsake those who seek him. That's Psalm 9:9. 9, 9. That he revives the spirit of the lowly and revives the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 57:15. That whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 1 Peter 2:6. That he will sustain us to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.8 That he will fulfill his purposes for them. Psalm 138.8 The faint-hearted also need to know that all things are under his sovereign, wise, and good control. Romans 8.28 and Proverbs 16.9 So it may be helpful for you to have your own personal list. Of verses that give you courage just for the sake of being ready to give courage to another sister. The faint-hearted need truths about God to give them courage for whatever is before them or whatever is within them that's stimulating fear and discouragement. Very likely in the process of being encouraged by the gentleness and kindness of God, they're going to see areas where their thinking has been unbiblical and they'll be able to turn from it. So I'm going to read to you a little section from David Pallison's article again. Um, this section just explains why admonishment for the one, the unruly, and why encouragement for the other. He writes, Wise and timely flexibility is the fruit of 514. So you treat a discouraged, anxious child differently from a willful, rebellious child. Paul teaches us to understand our brothers and sisters in terms of their particular struggles and then to respond appropriately. 
he never says admonish the disheartened or admonish the faint-hearted. To acknowledge personal wrongs is not step one for the anxious. If you primarily admonish them, you only further discourage them. But in the light of facing their fears and troubles, the promises of God become sweet and life-giving. In the same way, Paul never says, encourage the unruly. Helping them grasp that God loves them and will not abandon them is not step one for the willful. If you simply offer promises of kindness to, this, to the willful, you're only going to reinforce their impression that God is a sentimental dupe and reinforce their confidence that they can get away with whatever they're doing. But in the light of facing their sins, the promises of God become sweet and life-giving. So step one for the unruly is different than step one for the faint-hearted. Both may be sinning, but the unruly, according to God's wisdom, requires admonishment, and the faint-hearted, according to God's wisdom, require encouragement. All right, let's look at the third command, the next one. Help the weak. Now, if you're like me, upon first reading of 1 Thessalonians 5.14, um, this category of people, the weak, may seem a little bit hard to distinguish from the previous category, the faint-hearted. So, of course, I started by looking at other translations. So all the other major ones, like NIV, ESV, Holman, they all say weak. So there was no help there. So what is meant by the description of weak? Well, it literally means what it sounds like, lacking strength. And in this case, it means those without spiritual or moral strength. One commentary said that the weak are those who are about to yield to temptation, those who cannot endure the testing of persecution and reproach. And Paul could have had in mind, as he wrote this, um, in the Thessalonian church, there might have been people that were just having a hard time resisting the temptation to immorality. So we know that was something that was going on in 1 Thessalonians 4. Or maybe he had in mind some who were really struggling to endure the affliction that they were undergoing. He made reference to that in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. So in order to understand better what it means to be weak, um, it may be helpful to just look at what Paul says is the appropriate response to this category of person. The appropriate way to minister to the weak sister is to help. The word help means that you come near, you come close to that person in order to help lift them up. It's the idea of a stake and a plant. So um, a stake is going to be right next to the branch or the limb or the plant or the tree, whatever it is, that it's trying to hold up. Um, it needs to be right next to it to support it and hold it up off the ground so it can grow in the correct direction. That kind of support and very near help is what God wants us to give the person who's manifesting weakness. So you can already see how this kind of help, help, is different than encouragement um, that you give to the faint-hearted. So knowing that might help you discern which category you're dealing with. So let's think about helping the weak in the realm of children again. A weak child could be a child that's given to making poor choices. For this illustration, imagine a child who makes poor choices in choosing friends. This child is just drawn to other children who are disrespectful to adults, who bully other kids, who are just generally unkind. Maybe they even break rules, do dangerous things. I'm trying to keep it in the realm of seven-year-olds, so maybe not, I don't know. We won't go too far, but they're just kids that are not respectful and not kind. So imagine that your child um, is not a leader among his peers. 
So he is not spending time with these boys um, for the sake of the gospel. He's actually just attracted to them. And he is not the influencer, but the one being influenced. So if you have a child that you know makes poor choices about who he spends time with and who he allows to influence him, you would probably categorize him as weak in terms of conviction. Maybe he, um, maybe you've even had a conversation with him and he can see, yeah, I can see that these aren't really the best boys that I should be hanging out with, but he just seems to be drawn to them and just can't stop hanging out with them. Maybe he's weak in terms of willpower. So you're not going to keep your distance, right, in this realm of his life. You're going to be near to him and help him make decisions that are hard for him to make on his own. So you're going to be close to him in directing his free time or play dates. You're going to be close in knowing who he's spending time with at recess at school. Um, you're going to be helping him make wise decisions about who he spends time with because he's showing weakness in this area. So, um, oh, so going back to if you can't figure out the difference between am I dealing with a weak sister or am I dealing with a faint-hearted sister, you could go to the back end and say, does this sister need encouragement or does this sister need really close help in order to obey God in the specific situation or circumstance that she's in. And then just remember that wisdom is available from God who gives generously to all who ask for it. And we have wisdom from this verse here in 1 Thessalonians. So once you recognize that this sister is currently in the weak category, you know that God wants you to help her. You need to give close support for whatever the specific situation is. And what would you need in order to help her? You need God's word just as we do when we admonish and when we encourage. God's truth is the best help that you can give. However, this time when we're giving God's word, it needs to come from a really close proximity, an in-the-trenches-with-you type of proximity. So let's just say you see a sister in Christ with a severe lack of strength to resist the temptation to be discontent and singleness. Maybe she's shared with you that she's often depressed on weekends because she's alone. And she feels the loneliness deeply to the point of despair. She seems to be unable to focus her mind on truth when she's alone by her own admission. Her belief in God's goodness is weak. And living according to biblical convictions is a really big struggle for her when she finds herself in this cycle. Her ability to think biblically is low. So maybe what it would look like for you to help this sister is to make sure she has a place to be with people on the weekends who will help her think rightly about God and about her life, um, about what just what the purpose of her life is. So maybe you have her come over to your house every Friday night, and she makes dinner with you, helps you put your kids down, and spends the evening um, just talking with you and your husband, and maybe you do that for a month. And if you can't do it, you set up something for her to be with other people. But you're helping her. You're, you're walking very closely with her and making... Um, giving her practical support so that she's able to um, get out of this cycle of despair and um, depression. So the goal, of course, is not that you're always going to be holding her up and supporting her in that way. However, if you imagine that scenario, imagine that it is just a month. That's actually not that long. That's only four weekends. So let's say that's what you're choosing to do with this sister. Um, you can see why Paul and God would say that we need to be patient with everyone because it could be easy to want a process like that to go fast. 
because um, that requires a lot of constant nearness and support. On the other hand, maybe you're really good at helping and you really enjoy that kind of support and helping another believer, which is great. Um, but there's a word of caution in that. Um, you do want to be praying for and um, moving forward towards this person being strong on their own. Just like the stake doesn't stay attached, you wouldn't want it to, stay attached to the tree or the branch that it's holding up. It needs to help it grow in the right direction and eventually can be removed. That's the same thing for this kind of help. So we need to give help that's Godward focused, not help that makes the person always be dependent on us who's giving the help. All right, I think that's all for helping the weak. So there's just one more command in this verse, and it is be patient with everyone. So we admonish the unruly, we're encouraging the faint-hearted, we're helping the weak, but we are patient with all three of them. Regardless of how you assess your sister you are the, that you're serving and ministering to, whether she's willfully disobeying, frozen by fear, or unable to function well on her own, you must be patient with her. Let me just give you some definitions and descriptions of patience. There's a hyphenated word for patience that means the same thing, you guys probably know, long-suffering. Patience is an even-tempered response of someone who is slow to anger. That's from Expositor's Bible Commentary. The same commentary noted that dealing with the idle, the timid, the weak, requires this disposition, this disposition of patience, because these three groups of people so often refuse to respond immediately to constructive counsel. That's why we need it. Another description of patience is the opposite of short-tempered. That was Leon Morris. Leon Morris also said, impatience is easy, which I'm sure we can all attest to. I know I can. Impatience is easy. And he also reminds us that patience is the first description of love listed in 1 Corinthians 13. Patience means literally to be long-tempered. D. Edmund Hebert wrote that patience is that admirable quality which refuses readily to yield to anger and retaliation in the face of provocation or irritation. So at the beginning of this lesson, I quoted David Pallison about the possibility that we each have a natural bent probably toward one way of dealing with people, something that's easy for us. So that's probably why we need to remember that all three of these actions, admonishment, encouraging, and helping, need to be done with patience. Because if we're doing all three of these according to what the situation and the person calls for, at some point we're going to end up serving a sister in a way that's not easy or natural to us. And we will need to exert patience in our admonition or encouragement or helping. <coughs> So if it's difficult for me to encourage, I may be tempted to quit when a sister seems unencourageable. The real danger is that we would stop when we don't see the fruit that we would like to see. Just as God wants us to be faithful in evangelism, he wants us just to spread the gospel and leave the fruit up to him. He wants us to be faithful in parenting and in relationships, and we leave the fruit up to him. So in the same way, we need to obey this verse in the way that he's called us to obey it, and then leave the fruit up to him. That will require us to be patient. So before we conclude this lesson, I wanted to talk a little bit about why we would not obey 1 Thessalonians 5.14. What are some hindrances to obeying it? 
So I came up with five that I wanted just to talk about and that I was thinking about. You could probably think of more. Um, the first thing I thought of is you may, we may feel like we have a difficulty assessing what someone is. We just may be unsure. Is this person unruly, faint-hearted, or weak? I'm just having a hard time figuring it out. Well, the first answer to that hindrance is James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Then secondly, remember that if it isn't obvious to you what this person is, you don't have to make a hasty decision and put someone in a category arbitrarily. Take time to listen. Ask questions. Listen some more. Ask God for discernment. If you're really struggling, you may need to ask, ask someone who is biblically wise for counsel. You may need to go to someone and just flatten out the details. I don't know if that's what Anne said. She said that to us in our conflict resolution um, peacemaking lesson. She just said, if you need help in a conflict situation, go to someone else, but flatten out the details so that you're staying away from gossip. But you may need to go to someone else and get help, um, just like that doctor. It would have been great if he would have just gone to someone else that kind of knew a little bit more. Um, it also may take a few conversations with the person that you're seeking to minister to and to love, and that's okay. Then another word of caution is just remember that all of us have probably at different times exhibited all three of these categories. So we don't want to put, um, these aren't categories that we want to put people in, like boxes that they can't get out of. And then they're always going to be in there the rest of their lives. Or the rest of the time we know them, you are faint-hearted, I know. <laughs> so all, these categories are for the purpose of giving the right kind of help to a specific need. And that can change. And maybe someone is characteristically that way, but you don't want to put them in that box and leave them there. All right, secondly, another hindrance is laziness. To be quite honest, it's just easy to do what comes naturally to us. It may be easier to overlook sin or overlook weakness because it's going to require self-giving on our part. To love and care for another sister in Christ is going to require sacrifice, and we may not be willing to make the effort. So the answer to that, this hindrance, is to look to Jesus. The definition of love given to us by Jesus is that love is self-giving. It's self-emptying. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He was not lazy, and he was not selfish. Philippians 2 is another answer to this. It says, With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So we may be also lazy just incorrectly assessing, because it's going to take work and thought to discern what our sister is struggling with. And then we can just fall back onto what we're comfortable with. If we're comfortable with admonishment and we could think of something to correct, we may just throw out an admonishment and go on. Or just throw out an encouragement and move on. But 1 Thessalonians 5.14 just does not make an allowance for us to be lazy in our assessment because it makes it clear. And to be lazy in our service because there are different ways to serve that are appropriate. All right, third hindrance. Third hindrance would be a lack of love and a lack of involvement in body life. Eric Martin taught us a whole lesson on the one another's in scripture. The one another's are commands and standards for how we should be interacting with each other in the church. He asked the question, sorry, 
Hey. He asked the question at the end of his lesson, is it possible to be obedient to the one and other passages and to only be with believers on the Lord's day? If we're not around each other in the body, it's going to be pretty hard to actually impossible to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak because we're not going to know who they are and neither will we have the opportunity to love them and serve them in the way that God desires. Then fourth, another hindrance to obeying, 1 Thess 5.14, the fear of man. The fear of man, another way to say it is the love of man's approval, could keep us from obeying the commands in this verse. If we really want to be liked more than we want to honor God, it's going to be hard to admonish the unruly. If we really want to be admired, we will not help the weak in the way that will enable them to fully depend on God. Fear of man may keep us from encouraging with God's word if the person that we're encouraging wants to hear something else. And then go ahead and just look. Um, turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. This is a great passage for fear of man. This is why Paul was able to admonish and encourage and help with patience. So he writes, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Paul knew, first of all, that he was approved by God. That was the defining truth of his life, and that is a big deal. He was, he knew, I'm a sinner saved by grace. He had peace with God through Jesus Christ. That was a gift given to him by God himself. God is the only one who can save, and God is the only one who can condemn. The rest of us, we're all alike. We are dependent creatures with breath in us only as long as God wills it. So if you put God on a balance with another man or with all of mankind, it's obvious that his worth will outweigh humanity every time. Paul knew who he should fear. And Paul knew who, that he was approved by the one he feared. That's amazing. That's an amazing truth. So because he'd been approved by God, and now he's entrusted with the gospel, he wanted to please God and not man. He said he was not speaking with flattery to the people that he preached to. He didn't come to them in order to gain from them, whether it would be monetary gain or um, admiration or respect. Likewise, we can't be serving or ministering to a sister hoping to gain something personally. The person who fears God rather than man is the kind of person who will be able to effectively love and minister to others. And then also just notice Paul's lack of fear of man did not make him insensitive. You can look down at verse 7 of chapter 2. He writes, We proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So Paul and Silas and Timothy were full of affection for the people in this church. There was a true, tender love for them in their hearts. Fear of man can hinder us from obeying the commands in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and just like laziness, it can and must be identified and then turned from. There's a lot of great passages for dealing with the sin of fearing man, so I'm going to give you just a few. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 is a great starting point. You can add these. Proverbs 27.21, 1 
which if you look that up, you might go, really? What does that have to do with Brain Man? It just talks about how praise, we're tested by the praise that we receive. So um, if you are praised for something, what your heart does with that praise kind of reveals, am I fearing God or am I fearing man? Um, okay, and then Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, and then John twelve forty two to 43. Then the last hindrance that I had listed is number five, feeling inadequate for the task. In some ways, this is similar to number one, where you feel like you're just having a difficulty assessing um, what category someone is that you're um, trying to serve. This is different in the sense that you're trying to, maybe you feel like you have a difficulty in applying the solution. Um, you may feel like you're not adequate for the task of bringing God's word to bear appropriately in the life of the unruly, the faint-hearted, or the weak. So the solutions for each category of person is found in God's word, like we said. Maybe you just feel like you don't know God's word well enough to know how to apply it to your sister who needs to be admonished or who needs to be encouraged. Just consider that this is a good opportunity for you to sit down and to dig into God's word. See what God has to say about a specific sin or about fear and timidity or about um, weakness in a certain area. Maybe you just need to look back at what you've been reading daily and maybe you actually have more resources than you realize. Um, you may need just to go back and reread your journal or whatever you use to keep notes in or truths written down for yourself. But if you've been taking care of your own heart and you've been taking care and feeding yourself truth and you've been taking care of your own sin, learning how to repent and turn from your own sin, you're going to have something to offer your sister who is in need. I'm so sorry. I thought I turned off my phone. Um, but the opportunity that God gives you to minister to this sister um, may be the means that he is using to cause you to know him better and to know his word better. So God in his wisdom has given us 1 Thessalonians 5.14 as a guide for how we can take care to assess what would best help our spiritual siblings. We can trust him to give us the wisdom and patience necessary to obey the commands in this verse. We can also trust him with the results as we seek to be faithful and to love in the same manner that he has loved us. So I'm going to close this with, in prayer, but I'm going to turn off my phone. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's them. <laughs> I guess uh, I thought they knew where I was. <laughs> they woke up. Mom's gone. <laughs> So I wanted to, I was just so encouraged by this psalm this week. It's Psalm 86, and I'm just going to read it as I begin our prayer. Um, just been so encouraged by God's kindness, his, um, just the fact that we can cry out to him and we know that he hears us and that he loves us. And um, just like Paul was amazed, I think, remembering his own salvation, just knowing that he was approved by God. That's amazing. Um, that we can be approved by God. It just cuts out all the other things that are not important and the things that we worry about and the things that we um, contend to seek after. Um, puts everything in perspective. But I'm just encouraged to know that I can go to the God of the universe and pray to him and he hears me and he cares for me and he's given me himself. So let's just pray and I'll start with Psalm 86. Be gracious to us, O Lord. For to you we cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servants. For to you, O Lord, 
do we lift up our souls. For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for just making clear to us how we can serve one another. God, I just pray that the truths of 1 Thessalonians 5.14 would just kind of be ready for us and accessible to us in our minds as we interact with people. I pray, God, that we would use these truths appropriately, that we would be able to um, genuinely care for one another, to offer the help and the encouragement and the admonishment that's necessary. God, I just pray that um, this would only benefit and bless Grace Bible Church and that it would strengthen um, Christ-likeness in us and um, in our homes, but also in our church and, and with ourselves personally. God, thank you for um, just being clear. Thank you that we can read this letter that was written so long ago, and it applies to us. God, you're kind to let us know your ways. And um, God, I pray that as we go out from here and have discussion group times, that it would only be iron sharpening iron, um, that we would care well for each other as we interact. And um, God, we just ask that you would be glorified in this church, in individuals, and in homes. And I praise in Jesus' name. Amen.